So let me reread verse 12 and then I'll dive in. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Every couple of summers, my family and I, we go out west uh, by choice to usually to the Teton Mountains. It's our favorite place to go. Uh, Yellowstone National Park, that area. We spend time at Harriman State Park in Idaho. If you uh, if you're a big fly fisherman, that's a great place to go and fly fish. The Henry's Forks there at, in, in Harriman State Park. But we go there for rest and refuel. But we go there. I love to climb the mountains. I love to be up in the peaks. Because being up in the mountains gives a whole different perspective on life and busyness and energy and that kind of thing. So going to the mountains is very refueling for me. And Every time I read this passage in Isaiah 40, it feels like one of those high peaks that you walk up on and you have your perspective changed or refreshed or renewed. And that's exactly the purpose of Isaiah 40. The book of Isaiah, uh, obviously this verse 40, 12 falls in in the larger context of the whole book, which the ESV Bible says the theme is to declare the good news that God will glorify himself through the renewed and increased glory of his people, which will attract the nations. So the whole purpose of Isaiah was to awaken God's people that they should remember that he's great and that they should live great lives and the nations will be attracted to God because of their lives. Sadly, that was not the state of God's people. They were anything but glorious in those days. Their worship was idolatrous. They were worshiping the gods of the nations around them. They were worshiping material comforts and pursuits. And God uses Isaiah to try and awaken his people. Sadly, they don't. And God sends them into exile in Babylon. And all of this is meant to draw their hearts back to him. So when we come to chapter 40, for 39 verses, chapters, God has, God has used Isaiah to bring a confrontation to them. And I encourage you to read it at some point. It's a stunning confrontation, much of which is relevant to our day. But now in chapter 40, they are actually in Babylonian captivity, the capital of Assyria, one of the great wicked nations of, the, of history. But, it, but Isaiah's tone changes from one of confrontation to one of encouragement. How does God intend to give us this sort of strength that Isaiah speaks of? Well, he intends to give us himself. And that's what the first part of Isaiah is about. And so let's look at these very picturesque words that Isaiah uses to describe God. We're going to see his power. We're going to see his glory. We're going to see his care. We're going to see his purposes. Let's, let's dive in. Look at the first phrase in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? This is the hollow of your hand. Some of you brush your teeth by getting the water out of the spigot and putting it to your mouth. Some of you, when you hike uh, or by a river and you lap water up with the hollow of your hand, that's the hollow of your hand. As you know, the earth is 71% water. Our globe has 71% water. Think about your own experiences with water. Okay, just, just think about this one. This is, this, is, this is how you meditate on a passage, right? Okay, water. He's got the water in the hollow of his hands. Well, my experience with my garden hose, right, uh, has certain amounts of water pressure, good and bad. Uh, diving to the bottom of our pool, uh, we take the football down to the bottom of the pool and all the air goes out of it because the pressure of the water. Or my lungs get, where I can't breathe very much. 
I've been whitewater rafting, which is a terrifying and glorious experience at the same time. Going over whitewater rapids, class three, class four rapids is incredibly exhilarating. And people die annually because of that in the water. Or if you've ever been to the ocean when there's a double red flag, don't tell anybody if you've been in the water there, it's against the law to do that, but the power of a riptide can pull you out to ocean. And then something is phenomenal and horrifying as a tsunami which several years ago wiped out hundreds of thousands of people in Southeast Asia. Water is incredibly powerful. And this verse says that our God has measured it in the hollow of his hand. Incredible power. Not only do we see his power here, we see his glory. Look at the next phrase. It says he marked off the heavens with a span. Biblically speaking, the heavens are the starry hosts, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. The span is this, from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky, and the average human, 10 inches. If you're an NBA basketball player, 14 or 15 inches, but nonetheless, 10 inches. And it says that he marked off the heavens with a span. Okay, so for those of you who can comprehend this, our galaxy, just the Milky Way galaxy, is 100,000 light years long. Or for true scientists, they measure in parasecs. 3.26 light years is one parasec. And our galaxy is 30,000 of those. But if you're like me, not a real scientist, you're asking what in the world is a light year or a parasec? What is that? I I, I can't even comprehend it. Well, one light year is 6 trillion miles. One light year is 6 trillion miles. And our galaxy is 100,000 of those. So if you're like me, it's sort of like the national debt. I have no idea the size of those numbers. I just cannot comprehend that. But this verse says that God has measured that universe, and there's hundreds of thousands of those galaxies every 10 inches. Now think about this. If you started right over there by that vent, and you started measuring every 10 inches of this room, How well would you know this room? You know there's a spider web right there. You know there's a glimmish of paint right there. You know there's a water leak up there. You would know everything about this room. And God measures the heavens by the 10-inch span. That is glory. Not only is he powerful and glorious, the next phrase tells us he cares. (laughs) says that he has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, or literally in the Hebrew, he contained the dirt in a bowl. In the first service, I encouraged all the children to go home today with a rag and wipe the top of your refrigerator <laughs> and discover how much dust lies on your refrigerator. And then multiply that by 7 billion people, multiply that by all the deserts, multiply that by all the dirt in the world and God has contained it in a bowl. When I first read this passage, my first reaction was, who cares? It's dirt. And I think that's the point. God cares. He cares enough to measure dirt. As we'll see in a minute, the Bible calls us dust, that we were come from dust and to dust we were returned. So I'm thankful God cares about dust. Come back to that later. God is powerful, God is glorious, and God cares. He cares for you. Fourthly, the last phrase, we see his purpose. It says that he weighed the mountains and scales and the hills on a balance. Now, if you forgive my 
amateur scientific in, engagements for just a second here. I, I told you at the beginning, I love mountains. But there are two scientific uh, studies that have to do with the earth's crust. One is isostasy, spelled isostasy, or orogenesis, or orogeny. Both of these have to do with the study of how the earth's crust functions. Isostasy is the idea that the earth does not sit like a raft flat on a hard surface, but instead the earth's crust sits on top of a very alive and moving mantle of lava. And so the earth is alive, very much alive and moving. That's why the plates shift and that's why we have earthquakes. And that's why we, and then orogeny is actually the study of how mountains are formed. When these plates move and collide and, and the stuff under the earth moves, we get mountains. It's glorious when you study this geology. But the Bible says that God has measured the mountains and the hills in a balance. He put it on a scale. Think about your seventh grade little scale with a round thing that you made sure you calibrated it and the arm got right so it's level. That's what we're talking about. God takes the Himalayas and places them there and he knows they should go here. And he takes the Rockies and places them here and he sprinkles the Appalachians there because he has purpose. Even down to how the crust of the earth functions. This is an amazing God. One that is full of power and glory and care and purpose. But we need to take this a step further because we could stay in this deistic idea of a God who's that powerful and, and somehow try to wrap our minds. But God doesn't leave us there. He takes it a step further. Take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. You need to see this passage with your own eyes. It's one of those really type passages. Like, really it says that? Because, especially in light of what I just said, Isaiah 40 teaches. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, Isaiah 40, God, said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Takes it out of the clouds, doesn't he? And he puts his glory, his power, his care, his purpose in a face. Why a face? The face is the most intimate and recognizable part of a person. I can remember his face, I just can't remember his name. You say that all the time, right? Well, when I'm having an intimate moment with my wife, we look at each other in the face. I kiss her lips. We engage in face-to-face interaction. Or if I'm disciplining my children, what do I say to them? Look at me in the face. I want your undivided attention. This is personal. This is how relationship works, face-to-face. And when God wanted to show us the light of the knowledge of his glory, how did he do it? Send Jesus Christ. A face, a person, to relate to me, to relate to you. And there's a fascinating story in Mark 4 that I think captures this better than anything for me. You know the story. Jesus has been ministering for 18, 20 months. And he's got his disciples and he's headed towards the final year, year and a half of his his time on earth. And he's ministering to the sick and he's healing the lame and he's casting out demons and he's exhausted. And he gets in a boat with his disciples who, by the way, are fishermen, many of them. 
And they get on the Sea of Galilee and are headed across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus goes to sleep. And in the watch of the night, a huge storm comes onto the Sea of Galilee. Now, these guys were fishermen. They had seen storms their whole life. But this storm was utterly unique to them. The Bible says they were afraid of this storm. So afraid, they go back and they wake Jesus up and they challenge his care. Jesus, do you not care that this storm is going to kill us and you're asleep? And Jesus wakes up and he stands up and he says out loud, peace, be still. And he was speaking to the wind, to the rain, and to the sea. And in that moment, they all stopped. And these disciples, who Mark tells us were afraid of the storm, now he says they were terribly afraid in the presence of Jesus. And this was their phrase. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who was it? It was the God of Isaiah 40 in face-to-face encounter. Jesus was God in the flesh the creation knew it, they listened and obeyed. Shouldn't we do the same? Our great God speaks to us and says, peace, be still, go here, go there, do this, don't do that. We should listen to him. But what we're meant to see in the face of Jesus is not just the power of God, the glory of God, the care of God, the purpose of God, but namely The love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God demonstrates his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. When the full embodiment of God's power wanted to be displayed, he displayed it in the love of God seen in the face of Christ Jesus. When God wanted to display his ultimate glory... He displayed it in the face of Jesus Christ. When he wanted to show you he utterly cares for you, he sent his son to die for your sin. When he wanted to show you that he has ultimate intentions of purpose for the world, he sent his son on your behalf. This is a great God. Now, how do you apply something like this? We should, we could just stop and stand in awe, and we should. But I thought about applying it this way. This will be, make it memorable and tight. I, I'm going to take those elements, water, stars, heavens, dust, and mountains. And we'll make some applications. First, water. If you know Christ, then you have been baptized into him. Water is a sacramental symbol of the washing of the Holy Spirit and the applying of the blood of Jesus Christ to the sinner. That's what we believe about baptism, water. But Jesus said this. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you see yourself that way? If you have been baptized as a believer in Christ with water, then you are now supposed to have rivers of living water flowing out of you. Is this the sort of life you are living for Christ? Would people say that being around you is like being around a river of living water? Or what about the heavens? The starry hosts, one of the most famous starry, starry nights, if you will. Biblically, was the night that God gave the covenantal promise to Abraham. 
And how he personified that or gave him a picture of that was, Abraham, go outside and count the stars if you can. That's how I intend to fill my covenant promise. Those will be your descendants, the stars. Count them if you can. Have you ever tried that? It's impossible. But here's an easy application. Try that tonight. Find a dark place in the town, in the city. Go to Arboretum or Veterans Park or somewhere out in your backyard. It's dark. And go outside and look up at the stars. And when you do, remember these two things. One, Isaiah said that every one of those stars has a name given by God. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. If he is willing and able to name the stars, how much more so is he naming you? He's called you by name. And the second application when you look at those stars is to ask God to make his promise come true through you to fill the earth with his descendants. Every time I go overseas and I see the the sky in Thailand or the sky in Togo, Africa, or the sky in Almaty, Kazakhstan, I pray those two things. I need that reminder. And those, for some reason, on a foreign land and a foreign soil, when I see the stars, it's crystallized for me. God knows my name, just like he knows the name of that star. And God intends through me to bless the peoples of the earth. So what about the dust? What kind of application can we make there? The scriptures teach that humans were made from dust and that we will return to dust. So here's a couple of pretty... Not so wonderful applications. One, you are dust. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. You're nothing but dust. But God formed you fearfully and wonderfully out of dust so he gets the glory. You didn't form yourself. You didn't make yourself. God made you out of dust. You are dust. God has gloriously made you. And then the scriptures say you're going to go back to dust. That's exciting. I came from dust and I'm going to go back to dust. You're going to die. You're going to return to dust. But that can also be a liberating thought. Tim McGraw, great theologian, right? Country music scene, said, live like you were dying. It's actually pretty good advice. If you know you're going to be dust, then that totally affects how you live your life, how you spend your time, where you go, what you look at, how you spend your money who you relate with, how you use your mouth. Remember that you're dust. And then lastly, what about mountains? Mountains are these huge protrusions out of the earth that are glorious. And Jesus said this, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will, be, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Do you believe that? What mountains are you asking God to remove in your life or heal in your life? The unbelief of a child, the barrier of bitterness in a relationship, the gaping wound of an abuser, the financial stress in your family, the brokenness of your marriage, the uncertainty of the future. All of these mountains, God is able to move. So you make the application for yourself. Plenty there. Scriptures give us condescending images, right? God condescends to us in a good way by helping us see the weightiness of his character. 
And there is a certain weightiness to this, right? God, there is a weightiness to God that we're supposed to see. And there's a sort of weightiness that ought to be with our lives. And I'm a, let me close by quoting this scientist who's a uh, general relativist, Charles Meisner, as he was talking about Albert Einstein. Listen to this. He said, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe. It is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. He must have looked at what Christians said about God in general and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than he had ever imagined. And the Christians were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. May that never be true of us. God has given us no excuse. He sent Jesus Christ face of his glory. May we live lives that testify to the greatness and goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, as we do every week, we appeal to your spirit. He alone can apply your word to our hearts. So, Lord, wherever we are today, Lord, if there's mountains that need to be moved in our lives, I pray you'd give us the faith to trust you to move those. Lord, if we need to be rivers of living water, would you break down the dams that hold back that water of sin and arrogance, fear, and let us be rivers of living water. Father, if we walk in pride and haughtiness, Lord, remind us that we are dust and that we are nothing apart from your glorious creation and redemption. But Lord, also remind us that we too will die. And what will remain is the life of Christ given to us and to those around us. Help us to live lives for the glory of Christ in the lives of others. Lord, as we come to the table now, remind us that Jesus Christ indeed came as God in the flesh. And that he instituted a fellowship with us at this table that we might be brought close to you because you love us. Help us now in this meal, to taste and see that you are indeed good. In Christ's name we pray.